So turn with me now, please, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're picking up our, our studies in the book of Romans. And uh, last time, which is over a month ago, five, six weeks ago, uh, we looked at the first two verses of uh, Romans chapter 5. And we're going to press on a, a little bit more into 3 to 5 tonight. It's going to take a long time to get through Romans 5. Um, but let's... Uh, Read the book of uh, the first five verses of uh, Romans chapter five. Almost there. Almost there. One more page. It's coming. It's coming. There you go. <laughs> Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think if you're going to write a book that seeks to defend the Christian faith and some you know, the kind of book that you can give out to your non-Christian friends, one of the issues that you have to deal with is why is it that God uh, allows so much suffering? And a few years ago, um, a Presbyterian pastor, Tim Keller, uh, uh, published a book to, in 2008 called A Reason for God. And, and that was an interesting book because it's... Uh, there's many good things about it and one or two not so good things about it, but it's a wonderful book uh, to get you thinking uh, about the reason for God. It does what it says on the tin, as it were. But it is one of those rare things in the Christian world, um, a Christian book that found itself in the top ten of the New York Times bestseller list, at least for a week. I can't I can figure out how long it was actually there for. I think it got to number seven. And... It did so because it attempted to answer some of those big questions of uh, why uh, of, of life, and uh, one of those was how could God allow a good God allow suffering in the world? And the reason that it's there, and that as a chapter in that book, is because it's one of the most common questions that people ask when confronted by Christianity, by the, the claims of the gospel, the claims of Jesus Christ, is, well, if God is so good, why does God allow so much suffering in the world? And there's a problem that people wrestle with, um, uh, whether you're Christian or not, uh, whether from an academic and philosophical uh, viewpoint, what is evil? Where does it come from? That's quite a hard question, actually. Or more likely, from the point of view of personal experience, why has the suffering happened to me? Why am I having to go through such things like this? 
the big problem is, you see, why does why did people have to suffer? Why is it so often as well that apparently apparently good people uh, seem to suffer and bad people uh, seem to get away with without anything happening to them? That's one of the puzzles of life, isn't it? So for those of us who are Christians, we may well wrestle with some of those questions. Um, and it's a tension, isn't it? Isn't that a tension in the book of Job? Uh, Job was an upright man. Uh, he was... He walked with God, he confessed his sins, he, was, he made his sacrifices, he was a good man, um, uh, yet he suffered for reasons that, are, that, that neither he nor his friend, friends could really properly fathom. And those of us who are Christians, sometimes we feel uh, exactly the same sometimes. Why do we have to go through suffering and trial? Why do we have to face difficulties? Well, some big questions there, and we certainly can't answer all of them uh, this afternoon, but uh, these few verses do, uh, verses 3 through to 5, do give us some help, which we'll come to. So we're picking up in the book of Romans, after a month off, and just let me recap a little uh, of what we've been doing. We've discovered that, um, uh, we've, well, we've been thinking about the, the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ bring? And it solves the problem of our lack of righteousness. That human beings, all of us, uh, lack righteousness. Uh, And we are steeped in our godlessness and unrighteousness. But it's the very thing that we, we need if we want to be right with God. We need a righteousness from somewhere. And if If we have sinned, then we have fallen short of the glory of God, and we have lost it. We've lost that righteousness, and there's no going back. It's a kind of irreversible fact. If you've sinned, then you've blown it. And uh, there is no righteousness in you or me. But of course, the glory of the gospel is that God has taken the initiative in stepping into our situation to solve that impossible problem by sending his son into the world, who would bear our iniquities. And that was foretold by the prophets, wasn't it? Uh, this is the gospel as foretold in the ages past, in the law and the prophets. That the son of God would come and he would bear their iniquities, the iniquities of God's people. And, that, and we discovered wonderfully that the moment that we put our faith in Jesus that we realize our need of his saving grace, and we put our faith in him, then that moment is the moment we are declared righteous by God. God, in a sense, gives us a righteousness, his own righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And we are able to be declared righteous. And the amazing thing is... uh, you know, when you think through just all that Jesus has done for us in his death and his resurrection, at the point of his resurrection, that was the point where Jesus went from being sin for us to being vindicated, to being himself declared righteous. And so he enters into heaven as the righteous one. And he goes with all the names of his people. As is indicated in the Old Testament imagery of the the priesthood, 
uh, with the names of the tribes on his, on his chest and on his shoulders, representing all the peoples of God. And he goes into the, the heavenly of heavenlies, to the right hand of the Father, with the names of all his people. And Jesus says, these are my people. And because I am righteous, and you've made me righteous, all my people are righteous. And so the moment you believe it really is true, you become righteous in Jesus Christ. These are the people that Jesus has saved. That's a wonderful, great uh, truth of the gospel. And that righteousness that we receive as Christians comes with a host of other benefits. And we began to look at some of them last time uh, when we looked at the first two verses of this this chapter. Uh, Christians have peace with God. Um, All hostility is gone. Uh, Neither, no longer is a Christian hostile towards God. And perhaps more importantly, no longer is God hostile towards, towards us in our sinful state. And we have access into uh, the place of grace in which we now stand. The, uh, the Christian's life is now continually under the smile of God. You know, what, uh, an old minister of mine used to use that phrase all the time. You know, you come under the smile of God. As a Christian, you're gathered under his fatherly care. He smiles over you. And we have this hope of the glory of God. This is looking forward to to the coming glory. When we will be free of the burdens of this life. And the struggles of that pilgrim life I was mentioning earlier in prayer. And we look forward and we, we, we have this promised inheritance that we have with God. With Jesus Christ. We look forward to it. And so we have this hope of the glory uh, to come. And we will spend eternity with God, gazing on his beautiful face, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, and enjoying his glory in the most blessed existence. But Paul is not uh, finished there because he wants to spell out more particularly. Uh, what this means, not just in the future, but what does this mean for us now? Uh, how do we carry on uh, in this life? As we have that in our minds, the, the future glory to come, how do we carry on now as Christians? And when these Romans, I think, think about their lives, they are, uh, you know, their lives are not easy by any means. Uh, uh, they are in the ordinary struggle of life. Uh, they're doing the ordinary things of having to make a living, having to raise children, dealing with conflict in relationships and personal relationships, facing disease and illness and so on. But more than that, more than those ordinary things, they face particular troubles as Christians. And I think as Paul is writing, um, it's perhaps not long after the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. Um, you may have noticed uh, when we did, were doing our Bible studies in the book of Acts on Thursday evenings, when we came to Acts 18, verses, verse 2, we come across Priscilla and Aquila who are, in, uh, who are in Corinth. Why? Because they had been kicked out of Rome. Because they were Jewish. They were Jewish Christians, but they were Jewish. They were kicked out of Rome. And there was a persecution going on. 
And generally Christians uh, across the Roman and Jewish world were treated with the same suspicion as the Jews were at that time. And so there was persecution going on also. So there are many difficulties facing Christians. And the question is for Christians and for us is, do we just sit there, do we just sit here twiddling our thumbs, waiting for that glory to come, just surviving? Uh, Or is there another way? And Paul says in verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Let's think about that for a moment. Rejoicing in suffering. Have you lost your mind, Paul? <laughs> Have you gone a bit doolally? Are Christians to, to look, take some masochistic pleasure in suffering? Well, no, of course not. That's not the point at all. The point is that God, the Father, actually has a purpose in our suffering. And in the midst of it, he is doing something. And we'll come to that in a moment. But what I want want us, first of all, to realize is that when suffering comes into our lives, it's not random. It's not outside of God's control and purposes. As though he was taken by surprise. We might be taken by surprise by it. But we must never believe that God is taken by surprise by it. And actually the Lord is using it for a purpose. And Paul's point here is that because of that loving purpose. We need to learn to be able to rejoice in suffering. I wonder how many of you have. Here's a name that you may recognize, uh, and it's a strange name to me, uh, Horatio Gates Spafford. Have you come across Horatio Gates Spafford? He was a hymn writer. Um, I'll tell you about him in a minute. But uh, Spafford lived in, in Chicago with his wife, and, uh, his wife Anna in the, in the mid-19th century. He was a well-known lawyer, and together they had uh, four children. They were Christians. And uh, when he was uh, 45 years old, his, and his eldest child was 11 years old, he decided to take the family on holiday to Europe. Now, in the middle of the 19th century, you don't just fly. Uh, you have to get boats. You have to travel across and spend, I don't know how long it takes, a couple of weeks or something like that, before, a couple of weeks on a boat to get across the Atlantic Ocean. And... Uh, Unfortunately, Spafford himself was held back on some business. So he sent his family on ahead, his wife and four children, and uh, he stayed behind to do his business, uh, to finish his business. But on the 22nd of November, 1873, the ship on which his family were traveling was hit by another ship, and it sank. And it killed 226 people, including Spafford's four children. His wife survived and was able to send a very brief telegram. They didn't have a phone in those days. They just had telegrams. And the message was very simple. Saved alone. So you imagine, the news comes back that the boat has been hit and Horatio Spafford is beginning to think, what's happened to my family 
And then he gets this one message, two-word message from his wife by telegram. Saved alone. And so Spafford, he made the journey across himself, knowing that he would not see his children again. And it was on that journey that he composed a hymn. And it's the hymn that has that chorus, It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. What an amazing hymn. The first line, the first uh, verse goes, When peace like a river attendeth, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And this is, this is a man who's lost his children uh, to the sea. And the third verse reads this. O joy, O the joy of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but in whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. See, in the midst of that deep personal loss, he could rejoice in the midst of it that his sin was nailed to the cross, and he can rejoice in his Lord. Because nothing could take away the certainty of that. All other things in life are uncertain. All relationships are certain. As we were saying this morning, all career paths, all all possessions are uncertain. Everything is uncertain. Except this one thing. If you are saved. It is well with my soul. So hold that thought for a moment. Rejoicing is possible in the midst of suffering. But there is more. And uh, Paul goes on to explain why. Uh, So let's think the next thing, which is what it produces. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So Paul is actually saying a bit more than Spafford was saying in his hymn. Uh, Paul is saying... Uh, what, Paul, what Horatio Spafford was looking at was uh, uh, looking at the outside of his, his personal suffering. Uh, he's looking to something that happened 2,000 years in the past and how that helps him uh, through the present. And it gains for him something in the future that he's got to look forward to. And that's why he's rejoicing. But Paul is inviting us to do something different here. Uh, Something more than that. He's inviting us to look at the suffering itself and to realize something about the suffering. And to rejoice in what you come to realize. What should we come to realize? We come to realize that suffering in our lives can produce something in our lives. We know that suffering produces endurance, and and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It's almost as though he's saying, uh, our suffering becomes the seedbed, uh, out of which grow these wonderful crops, uh, plants, flowers, fruitful trees. Uh, I'm not a great gardener. Um, I like looking at other people's gardens. 
And uh, I don't, I lack the inclination as well as the ability to, to make something look beautiful. Uh, Susan is much, much better at this than me. But the thing is, the thing I do know is to, to be able to grow something, you need to, to prepare the ground. And frankly, it's hard work. And I, get, I easily get discouraged. I get fed up digging stuff. <laughs> um, and you've got to turn over the ground, you've got to pull out the stones, you've got to add the fertilizer. And to me, that's just like misery, <laughs> uh, ongoing misery. But if you persist, I know, I know this is true, if you persist and you're patient, then something grows in it. And I think suffering and trouble in the Christian life is something like that. It, it produces something like that. It's, something comes out of it. It's, it's kind of... It's like suffering comes and it, it turns over parts of your life uh, and it can be unpleasant and it can be painful and backbreaking and miserable at times. But out of that suffering, something is being produced, something that one can stand back and admire by the grace of God. Don't you find that with people who've been walking the Christian life for years and decades and uh, you know people who... Reaching to come towards the end of their lives after decades of walking with God, and you and you you look at them and you think they're such beautiful people. Why? Because they've gone through the sufferings and trials of life, and I've known we've known people in this, in church like that who've gone through difficulties, suffering of loss and pain in their lives, and yet they seem to have a beauty about them. There's a fruitfulness about them that is so encouraging to see. Uh, I'm not trying to trivialize our suffering. Uh, some Christians do suffer terribly. But what I think Paul is, is trying to get us to see is that something is being produced in it. So what is being produced in the life of a Christian in suffering? Well, it's this chain of things. It's like a plant that's growing you know, and you, you see the shoots coming up. And it looks like just a wee green shoot and you don't think that's nothing. But then over time, I know you're gardeners, you guys. <laughs> and, uh, but you see it growing, you know, and then gradually the, the I don't know what happens next. What is you begin to get branches coming off. Branches. <laughs> what does he know? Uh, you, get, you get leaves coming off, don't you? And you start, and then maybe flowers, and, and, and then things you can eat start appearing. <laughs> uh, if, if it's the right kind of plant. Um, you know, and, and wonderful things start emerging. It's, and this is what Paul is saying. You know, one thing leads to another, to another, to another. Let's just think about what appears. Endurance, patience, or put it another way, patience. I, I have a friend who's a, who's a pastor in Birmingham. He's the same age as me. And I remember a few years ago, uh, he... He decided to take up boxing. <laughs> we all laughed in our preacher's group. He said, well, what? <laughs> he joined a boxing club. He was in his 50s. He thought, you're just, mate, you're just going to get flattened. Um, but, you know, he's telling me about it, and he was going to the training sessions. And what he told me was, well, you just don't get straight into the ring with somebody, because, yeah, you'll get flattened, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You don't know what you're doing. 
you, you wouldn't last. You wouldn't have the stamina to, to last a, a few seconds with somebody who knows how to box. What he had to do is he had to prepare. He had to, he had to develop his technique and his ability to endure the onslaught of an opponent. And in boxing, so I'm told, <laughs> your body cries out in the pain to stop. Just get out of the ring. But you have to learn to resist mentally and physically. Otherwise, you'll throw in the towel early. So my boxing pastor friend had to develop endurance before he could enter into a ring and actually fight somebody. Uh, Now Christians have to do that. That's a silly illustration. But Christians have to do that. Baby Christians often don't have the endurance that they need and the patience they need that mature Christians have. So they need to be nurtured and they need to be helped in the difficult things of, of, the, of the lives that they lead. They need to learn patient endurance in the Christian life. And that is what God is doing through suffering and through trouble in our lives. So patient endurance. But that in turn then produces something else. It produces character. What does he mean by character? Uh, he doesn't mean what we mean by, in the sense in which we talk about someone being, being our character. Uh, a slightly odd person. <laughs> So-and-so is a character. Um, a quirky, funny, oddball person, but maybe an enjoyable person, I don't know. But no, when, What we mean by character is, uh, some, it means something more like uh, testedness or... Approvedness, you know, you've gone through a process and you have now been tested, and you have certain qualities about you that enable you to uh, to endure. And and you know, having come from an engineering background, at least part of my my life, um, you know, when an engineering component is is designed, it does have to be tested for strength and stress and all of these kind of things. In, in Rolls-Royce where I used to work, you know, I used to t- stress test all kinds of things because you don't want bits of your en- aero engines on your aeroplane falling out of the sky. Uh, it's a bad idea. So you need to test it on the ground and you need to make sure it passes all the tests. And when it's passed all the tests, then you can use it. You can send it off into the field and it can be in planes and uh, everybody's happy and safe. But that's what we mean by by Christians who have been tested by suffering. And uh, they have had character produced in them. They have a testedness about them. They have been tested and, found, and not been found wanting. They have learned to be faithful to God, to trust him and to obey him, even when it hurts. Because suffering produces endurance and patience, which in turn develops character. Godliness, Christ likeness. But then finally, this character produces hope. Now, this is not different from the hope that he's mentioned already, the hope of the glory of God in verse 2. It's not different from that. And when we consider that hope, um, we consider that it's a sure and certain expectation of the glory of God and of seeing the 
the glory of God and of enjoying it in a way that we can only get to maybe just taste a little bit of or smell a little bit of here on earth. But it's interesting that that hope, the strength of that expectation of hope, of future glory and a future blessing, is linked to the development of character that comes out of endurance, that comes from suffering. And so suffering, you see, as we go through the trials of our lives, actually stimulates, enriches, and matures our hope of the future. Get a sense of it? We see that so this, this hope has, has, has taken root in us as we have received the gospel, but it's like a little flower that needs to grow and to grow and to grow. As we grow in patience and as we grow in character as the people of God, as we go through the trials of this life. So do you see the chain? How hope grows out of suffering? That God is doing great things in the midst of suffering? That he wants to do great things amongst, in your suffering? We need to trust him through it. Well, there's even more than that that Paul uh, speaks of. And uh, we come to verse 5. I want to speak now about how God pours his love into us. We've seen, how, how, is it, how does this chain of events work? How does, it, how does it go from suffering to endurance to character to hope? What is going on? What's going on behind the scenes? Let's lift the bonnet up a bit, or the hood, you Americans. Let's lift the hood. Let's have a look in and see what's going on under, under the surface. This is what Paul deals with in verse 5. What's going on behind the scenes. He introduces the agent that is involved. And the agent is, of course, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is the, the th- only the third time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this letter. He'll mention the Holy Spirit more later. The first time, if you remember, the Holy Spirit was the, uh, the power behind the resurrection of Jesus in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Um, the second time the Spirit is mentioned is in, in this idea of heart circumcision uh, in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 29. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and circumcises our hearts and makes us new people uh, in Christ. But this time the Spirit does, is described as doing something quite amazing. Uh, he is the means by which God pours his love into our hearts. He is the means by which... What this means is that the believer who has been initially changed uh, is undergoing a continuing uh, work of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit continually brings to our minds an understanding of the love of God. And in that sense, the, the, the love of God is poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit is continually at work, revealing, as it were, something of who God is. And Paul is going to say much more about the work of the Holy Spirit. But here he, said, said, here he says that this is his job. And in the next few verses we'll see how this, the Holy Spirit does that. But suffice it to say for now that the Holy Spirit does this by pouring the love of God into our hearts. In the midst of all our suffering and all our troubles. That he is reminding us constantly and filling our hearts with a sense of the love of God. 
So every, every temptation, every temptation will come to us from the world around us or from the residual desires of our fallen nature or the simple whispering of the, the devil in our ears. So we will face temptations the whole time. Uh, and we will face the temptation to simply give up on, the God, on, on this God and on the way of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and cr- by grace alone, through Christ alone. And especially when suffering comes, that temptation is going to come to us. Just to give up, just to throw in the towel. But the real Christian has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is continually at work in you and me, if we're Christians this evening. So that no matter the attempts of the world, or the devil, or our own sinful nature... The believer is sustained by a continuing, assuring work of the Holy Spirit. See what Paul is trying to say to his Christian friends. The benefits of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ are not just theoretical, uh, held for you in the future or done for you in the past. But they are a real present living reality. Christ has come by his spirit into your life and is sustaining you through all your sufferings and all your difficulties and preparing you to have a stronger hope for the future. Friends, this is a cause for us to rejoice. Christ has done everything for us. Which opens us up to the peace of God and gives us access to his grace and fills our hearts with joy. Yet there is more to, more to that joy as we consider what he, that he does not abandon us, but is carefully preparing us to enter into that hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. Thank you for the depth with, with which Paul deals with all the issues. Thank you that you are the God who has not simply done something in the past and holds out something for us in the future, but is an ever-present reality in our lives if we're Christian. So, Lord, we pray you'd help us to learn and to, to grow in endurance and patience, that you'd develop in, in us character, and that we would grow in hope, therefore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.